Praise forever to the King of Kings. Thank you, Zach, and praise team. If you'll reach for your Bibles with me for today's scripture reading and turn in your Bible to Psalm chapter 12, Psalm 12, as Pastor Bruce continues his series, Summer in the Psalms. We'll be reading Psalms 12. And if you're in need of a Q Bible, Please find, if you're in need of a Bible, there should be a pew Bible located in front of you. Feel free to grab that, and you can find today's scripture reading on page 533. Psalm chapter 12, follow along as I start in verse 1, reading through the chapter. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips, we're, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Father, we come this morning, Lord. Father, and we thank you for your word. Lord, that your word is a living word, Father. Lord, I think of each individual here, those that have had tough weeks this week, Lord, those that are in mourning, those that have had good weeks, Lord, I thank you that each person is here, Lord. May you just speak to us where we are in this life, Lord. Open our eyes and open our hearts to your word. In your name I pray, amen. As we continue in our summer series in the Psalms, there has been a definite theme, a consistent tone to the Psalms that we have looked at, especially these last two weeks. We saw Psalm 10, we looked at Psalm 11 last Sunday, and those two Psalms in particular are what are called lament Psalms. And lament just means they, it's a cry of pain. That's what David's doing in these Psalms. He's crying out to God in his anguish, his pain, They're an expression as well of his trust in God. And that's what we saw in Psalms 11 and Psalm 10. And so lament psalms are, they're about one's anguish. They're about one's despair and grief in our lives. They're also about dissatisfaction with the world. And sometimes even our dissatisfaction with how God is working in the world. What's so awesome about these lament psalms is they always point us back to the Lord as the ultimate answer in our lives. This psalm here that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 12, continues the same theme of lament. And so if you're waiting for this series to get a little more happier, well, you're going to need to wait a little longer. But I promise they will pick up as we continue on in our summer series in the Psalms. So David is again having a very rough time as he wrote Psalm 12. And his particular point of pain is one that I'm sure all of us here this morning can relate to. David felt very alone. He looked around and he saw a world that was filled with liars and becoming more corrupt 
by the moment. We saw last Sunday in Psalm 11 that the wicked were destroying the very foundations of society. And now it seems like they have won the day here in Psalm 12, wiping out the godly with their, their lies and their deception. When the foundations begin to crumble, listen, truth and truthfulness are the first to go. And David laments this now. He laments the tsunami of smooth-talking liars corrupting the land and sweeping away the faithful. And so he laments a society where he sees deception and arrogance and falsehood at every turn. And David is very, very honest with his feelings here. He is honest about his despair. He feels dominated by the wicked, whose speech has become the weapon of choice. And most of all, he feels alone in a very desperate situation in his life. And so what we see here is really another question being posed in this psalm, Psalm 12. Notice it in your notes. And the question is this. We might summarize it this way. What can you do when the godly are gone? When the faithful have vanished? And you live in a land of liars. Now, we do not know the exact situation that moved David to write Psalm 12. But Absalom's rebellion against King David certainly illustrates the type of speech described here and condemned in this psalm. In fact, David's son seduced Israel with his own lies. His military coup was marked by espionage and betrayal and deception. In fact, we even read that according to 2 Samuel 15, David's son Absalom, we are told, stole the hearts of the people of Israel, and he did so through his flattery and his deception. And so perhaps that is the motive here of when David writes this psalm. Whatever it is, David is lamenting the very seductive power of talk that is outwardly sincere, but inwardly it's very malicious. And so he cries out in verses 1 and 2, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. And so, Whatever the situation is, this psalm indicates that the situation was so desperate that David felt utterly alone and he longed for deliverance from such liars and their deception. Now this psalm, it's obvious, it's very timeless. This psalm is very relevant even for us today. For our world is still filled with liars and false flatterers, so that the righteous do not know who they can trust. And here's David's answer. Let me just give it to you up front. Here's what we're going to see. Here's what we're going to unpack. Here's the answer that David gives us in Psalm 12 here. And it's in a world that is filled with liars, in a world that lives by deception, only God's word can be trusted. And so although David is very discouraged, he is still very hopeful. David has the promise that the Lord himself will, 
will rise up and deliver his people from such deception. And David has the assurance that God's word can be trusted. And it can be trusted in a world that is filled with liars and lives by deception. So notice the very first point here. Notice, when you live in a land of liars, here's what we can do. We can do what David did. We, we can cry to God for help when deception replaces faithfulness in the land. David begins here with an immediate cry to God for help. David has nowhere else to look but upward to his God. And so like an arrow that is shot straight into the sky, he cries out immediately here in verse 1, Save, O Lord. Now, in the Hebrew, it's actually just two words. Lord, help. David just cries out the name of God and help. David isn't naive about his situation here. He knows he's in danger, so much danger that he simply turns to the Lord for help. And so what a, what a simple prayer by David. And yet what a very powerful prayer by David. Lord. Help! And in this, David is showing that we as God's people, we can lean in on this prayer whenever it is needed. In fact, what's really interesting here is this word help that David uses, it's often used in the context of receiving deliverance from one's enemies. And so it's also translated as save, as it is here in our our English Standard Version Bibles that we're using today. So it's, it's save, O Lord, as we read today, but it's also translated as help many times. And, and this idea of save is used repeatedly throughout the Old Testament to describe how God saves his people. The Lord saves is a recurring theme throughout the history of God's people. Israel, by definition, is a rescued people and God is their Savior. And so over and over we read about this, that God has delivered his people, the children of Israel, and the most defining moment is when God delivered his people from slavery or bondage in Egypt. In fact, you go to Psalms 106, and there it is, that chapter in particular is dedicated to tracing the mercy of God in saving his people despite what they deserve. Listen to what it says in verses 7 and 8. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he, speaking of God, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. So God has delivered and saved his people so often and with such mighty power that he is often called a God of what? A God of salvation. Psalm 68, 20, we find that. In other words, saving people, helping people is what God does. David knows this, and that is what David is now doing here. He calls on God to do what he does best. Lord, help. Save, O Lord. But that begs the question, save us from what? And for David in particular, what is he asking God to save him from? Well, for David, it's saved from the repercussions of a lying society. 
In fact, notice this in your notes here. Prayer is most urgent when faithfulness vanishes from the land. And deception and duplicity are then prevalent in a society. And so David is very grieved by what he sees, and he uses rather inflated words to express what he feels. In short, David sees a culture. He sees a land around him. He sees a society that has replaced faithfulness with deception and duplicity, and now it seems the influence of righteousness is gone from the land. And David's words here, let me tell you, are very emotional. In fact, they're extreme. And they're, they're not meant to be taken literally. However, what he feels within his heart and his soul is oh so very real. Notice what he says again in verses 1 and 2. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. So, welcome to a lying society where the faithful have vanished, where everyone speaks in empty talk, smooth talk, and double talk. Faithful here, in this context, refers to faithful living that pleases God. Faithful people commit keep their commitments, in other words. They honor their relationship with God by by trusting Him and serving Him from the heart. They honor their relationship with others through their loyalty, integrity, and trustworthiness. But David looks around, and he sees that all the faithful people are now vanished. They're gone. He doesn't say how. He doesn't tell us why they have vanished, but simply it seems that way to him. Now, we we know, we understand this is hyperbole here. He's he's using some exaggeration. Literally, not everyone in the land is gone that is righteous, that is faithful, that is godly. But it seems that way to him. In fact, verse 1 tells us who has vanished. The faithful have vanished. Verse 2 tells us what is prevalent in the land. And it's a lying society. And it all centers, did you catch this when it was read for us? It all centers on one's speech. And David is reflecting, he's writing, and he's telling us that that speech is nothing but empty talk. In other words, it's lies. There's no substance to it. There's no foundation in fact. It's not just empty talk, but it's smooth talk, flattery in other words. And it's also double talk, deception and fraud. Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 2 this way in the message translation. He says, everyone talks in lie language. Lies slide off their oily lips. They double talk with forked tongues. One commentator adds this insight. He says, with duplicity in their hearts, they look you in the face and lie to you. They tell you what you want to hear with flattery, but their words are are inflated at best and dishonest at worst. You can't believe or trust a word that comes out of their mouths. They have an agenda and will say anything to see it accomplished. They have crafted a story and will not let the facts get in the way. Sounds like that could have been written in describing our own culture and society. 
our own world today. And did you notice the problem here is not just occasional. It is it's pervasive. David says everyone talks this way to his neighbor. Again, everyone here is not literal, but he is emphasizing the breadth of the problem. Deception and duplicity were everywhere in the land. And this phrase, to his neighbor, talking to his neighbor this way, emphasizes the depth of the problem. In other words, every segment of society was deceitful. And so no wonder David felt like the the godly are gone, the, the faithful have vanished, and everyone just lies all the time to their neighbor. Don't you you feel the same as David sometimes? Even today in our our society. Today we live in a, we might say, like David did, a lying society. And all of us can relate to this at, at some level, to some degree, whether it's lying advertising, whether it's lying politicians, lying media, a lying government, lying lawyers, lying religious leaders, lying employers, lying co-workers. It seems the spin doctors are always at work and out of control. But for some of you, this is, this is personal. You've been the victim of deception, fraud. You've been lied to. And perhaps you've even been lied to by someone who, who was supposedly your friend, who cared about you, someone who, who acted as if they had your best interests in mind. And then you find out, no, it was all about their agenda. And so we can all resonate here with David's desperation when he cried out to the Lord, help. And now David's cry for help gets very, very precise. Notice it. David's prayer is for God to cut off the deceitful and arrogant in society. You see, justice and deliverance is what David wants. Like most people in society want. And that's exactly what David prays for here. And central to David's despair is that there's no immediate judgment. And these liars in the land look as if they are getting away with their deception and their duplicity. And therefore, David prays, look at it here in verses 3 and 4, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Now, now what does David mean by cut off flattering lips? Does he mean he's asking God to literally cut out somebody's tongue and cut off their lips? Is that what he's asking for? Again, it's not literal here. doesn't mean David wants God to cut off their lips and cut out their tongues. Rather, the phrase here is a request for divine judgment. That God would make them stop their arrogant deception and duplicity. In other words, what David is praying for, what David wants, is the Lord to wipe out those who flatter and boast, to take out the smooth talkers who who use smooth words to get their way with little or no regard for the well-being of others. Verse 4 actually summarizes 
what they're thinking behind their deception and duplicity, their lies, in other words. Notice their own thinking. This is kind of their worldview. This is their philosophy. This is what they live by. They say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? In other words, these arrogant liars claim no one has authority over their words or their actions. They they believe that they can just say whatever they want, and they believe that they answer to no one. As, again, another commentator put it, they are their own propaganda machine with zero accountability. In our world, their words would be their weapons and social media would be their tool. And when such arrogance is is joined with deception, there is no limit to the destruction that can follow. And so the cry here from David is for God to do something about this. God, please, please stop, stop the arrogant deception and duplicity that is across the land and in our society. That's his prayer. You ever feel like that? You ever feel that way? Even today in our our culture, or perhaps even more personal, have, have you ever been done wrong? Have you ever been lied to? Or, or have you ever been lied about? Ever Has anyone ever deceived you? Have you ever watched an arrogant person just get away with their deception? Have you ever wondered and said to yourself, God, when are you going to do something about this? This is the basis of David's lament here in Psalm 12. So, so what can you do when you live in a land of liars? Well, like David, you listen, we hear, we can cry out to our God for help. Save us, O oh Lord. You have saved in the past. You demonstrate that. You have saved today. You can save us now. But number two, David also shows us that we need to wait on God to deliver you from such deception and oppression. Wait on God to deliver you. In the second half of this psalm, there's an immediate shift in focus. There's a change, even in tone, where God's word now confronts the words of the wicked. Their words, that is the wicked's words, may seem rather powerful, but they are weak. God's words at the moment may seem weak, but we're going to see here in a moment that God's word is powerful. Verse 5 records God's answer to David's prayer for help. And it's presented as an oracle from God or as a a word from God. So this verse, verse 5, is actually the focal point for the whole psalm here. Notice what God says in verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, and now notice what happens. God says, I will now arise. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. So what we have here in verse 5 is a very sure promise from God. And notice the promise here in your notes. God promises to protect his people 
by acting on behalf of the oppressed. So what we learn here now is that the liars that David was describing in verses 2 through 4, they have used their words, they've used the power of their words to oppress the poor and the needy. And we see that their oppression has been so great that the needy groan over the devastation that they are experiencing in their life. In fact, it's rather interesting, the the verbal assault against the poor and needy is actually equated with violence. And this causes the Lord to act, to act on their behalf. The weak and helpless are always the first victims of a deceitful, lying society. And because they are powerless, the poor and needy are oftentimes very vulnerable. And in this case, specifically, we are told they are, quote, plundered. Now, exactly how the poor are plundered is not stated. We're not told. But what we do know is that God sees when the poor are plundered, and he also hears when the needy groan in their oppression. And in the context of the Psalms, the godly, by and large, are the poor and the needy. In fact, did you catch it? It's interesting. David actually includes himself among the poor and the needy by using the pronoun us in verse 7. In fact, you go to the New Testament, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Why? Because it's, now spiritually speaking, it's an attitude of humbleness and humility that you must have in order to be godly or part of the faithful. In other words, to, to have Jesus as your righteousness. And we even see the, the beginning of that here in the Old Testament. And so David speaks of the poor and needy in general, but he's also thinking particular about God's people who are often poor and needy, and therefore they are often abused and oppressed in this world. But David recognizes God sees and God hears the cries of his people, and most of all, God takes action. And so like a warrior now standing up to do battle, God says, I will now arise. One commentator, Gerald Wilson, puts the Lord's actions in context this way when he says, or he writes, God, the divine king who sits in judgment in Psalms 9 and 10, who from his heavenly throne examines both righteous and wicked in Psalm 11, will enforce limitations on their power and authority when he arises to protect the defenseless from those who are maligning them. In other words, what he's saying is the Lord saves his people. Their cries for help will be answered. And so when they are groaning for help, God flies to the rescue. He puts them in a place of safety and security Charles Spurgeon is right when he said, nothing moves a father like the cries of his children. Do you realize, as his children, we have a heavenly father. 
And our Heavenly Father encourages His children in Psalm 50, verse 15, to call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. So be patient and wait on God to deliver you from such deception and oppression. God promises to act on behalf of His children. And we just want to ask, or at least when I was studying this, I I couldn't help but ask, like, but when, God? When? When will you arise and rescue? After all, God says, does he not? Here in verse 5, I will now arise. So what do, we, what do we make of this now? Well, this now, because we know by our own experience, this now is not always immediate. In fact, we, we, verses 7 and 8 in the same chapter seem to show that. And so in those verses, in these verses, God, God preserves his people, but it also looks like the wicked are still strutting their stuff in society. And so the emphasis here in verse 5 on the now is not so much on immediate now deliverance, but rather the emphasis is on the certainty of God's deliverance. At the time when God is ready to arise and deliver his people, which we know will ultimately come when? At the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, all of this, this assurance here that David gives us in verse 5, it ought to just grab us. Because after wading through the deception and duplicity of a lying society, we now come to a truth-speaking God who hears our cries for help and will act on our behalf. And so what, a, what an immense comfort to have a steadfast God in the midst of all the arrogant lies and falsehoods in the world. And so like David, this, this is why. This is why we today, in our world today, our culture today, this is why we, we lean hard and we lean in on God's promises. We rest on his assurance, such as in Psalm 34, 22, where it says the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, let me just stop here for a moment and just say this this is where biblical lament should always lead us. What we see here, as we have seen in the previous two Psalms, is lament by David. In other words, it's, David is expressing honest pain and anguish in these Psalms. But, but his laments also lead us from honest pain to the promises of God's word. So in that, we see a warning to us all. Lament that does not lead to the promises of God, almost will always lead you to bitterness, resentment, and depression. So be sad. Be very sad. That's part of our emotions that God has given to us when pain comes into our life, tragedy. There is sadness We live in a sin-filled, broken world. 
And so to deny that reality is to deny reality. So we don't deny our sadness. We don't deny our pain. Listen, be very sad, but take your sadness to the Lord. Wrap your pain in the promises of God. Listen, God's answer in the midst of a desperate situation here is to give us a promise to act on our behalf. So what can you do when you live in a land of liars? Like David, you can cry out to God for help. You can wait on God to deliver you. And number three, you can rest in God's promise to protect his people amid rampant wickedness. Now, we might wait for years before God steps in to act on our behalf. In fact, you might go to your grave still waiting for God to make things right in this world. So can we trust God to keep his promises then? And the answer is yes. David responds to God's promise with an expression of faith in the very surety of God's word. It's almost as if David is, is kind of preaching to his own heart when he says in verse 6, look at it, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. But then David concludes with a, a present paradox in which we live in verses 7 and 8. He says, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So what do we make of this present paradox in which we still live in? Well, two, two observations here with this. We, we have a very clear confidence from David here. And here's what I mean by that. Notice in your notes, God's words are pure and certain. In fact, God's words are the only true source of comfort in a land of liars. And so what a contrast to the world in which David is living. He lives, again, as a reminder, he lives in a land that's filled with liars. He lives in a land that lives by deception. It's a lying society that is marked by empty talk, smooth talk, and double talk. But God's words are not like that. Listen, David is reminding us here that every word of God is pure and perfect. It's reliable and trustworthy. Further, God's words are like valuable silver that is refined in a furnace, not one time, not two times, not three times, but seven times, David says. In other words, not the slightest impurity remains in the word of God. This underscores the very character of in nature of God's words. There's, there's no impurity. There's no deception in his words. Listen, people may lie, and they do, but God never does. People, people speak with flattering words. They speak with deceptive hearts, but the Lord speaks with honest words. He speaks from a heart of integrity. His words are perfectly pure and can be completely trusted. God's words are pure, and therefore... His promises are certain. God has promised in verse 5 to do something. He's promised to protect his people. And you know what David does? David takes him at his word. 
David believes it. And he declares now in verse 7, O Lord, You will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. In other words, the idea is that God will guard and preserve His people from a lying generation even before the decisive now in verse 5 arrives in the coming of Jesus Christ. God's words are worthy to be trusted. This is the only true source of comfort in a land of liars. And David banks his life on this. He banks his life on God's promise to protect his people in the midst of such rampant wickedness. In a world that that idolizes power, in a world that applauds deception and dishonesty, God's word and his promises remain the only true source of comfort. As one commentator says, he's spot on when he writes, people may not always like what the Bible says, but it tells the truth. But notice how this psalm ends with our present reality even today. Notice it. Our present reality is this. The wicked still prowl in the land, and vileness is still exalted in society. So after the comforting promise of God's justice and deliverance, verse 8, I'll be honest with you, it seems like a downer. David writes, in fact, he ends the psalm this way. On every side the wicked prowl. As vileness is exalted among the children of man. And I'm just like, David, you want to end the psalm this way? Come on. But David's being so real here. Our present reality is the wicked still prowl all around like a lion seeking whom they may devour. That cannot be denied in a fallen, sinful, broken world. And further, we we can expect vileness to still be exalted in society. We see it every day. It's all around us. So yes, we can expect lost people to act like lost people. But we can also expect God to act like God. He will provide for, He will protect those who know Him, who love Him, and belong to Him. As one commentator says, he puts it perfectly when he writes, God, guarding His people is a reality even when the wicked walk around like kings. And so do you sense, perhaps even feel, the tension here of this paradox? God promises to guard us and to protect us, and yet the wicked still rule the day. At least for the time being. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like paradoxes. They bug me. In fact, they irritate me. And yet this paradox... I think the reason David ends the psalm this way is because he wants to remind us of something. He wants to remind us that spiritual conflict is far from over. 
Listen, the struggle still continues. The wicked still continue to stalk us in this world until Jesus comes. Listen, on this side of eternity, the barrage of vain and vile speech will continue, and believers will have to determine how we will respond to it all. Are we, will we truly take God in his word like David did? Will we, will we trust God with all of our lives? Will we bank our lives on the promises of God, on his sure, pure word? Think about this for a moment. Nothing has really changed in David's life when he wrote this song. From the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm, nothing has really changed. The wicked are still prowling at the end of the psalm, just as they were prowling across the land at the beginning of the psalm. In fact, if anything, the situation is worse because not only are the faithful a very small remnant, but vileness is still being exalted among the people. So what's changed? Oh, David has changed. His perspective has changed. He's not crying out to God for help anymore. He has heard God's promise to protect him, and he now believes God's word. Like David, we don't know how severe our troubles may be if the wicked still have tenure to swagger and strut in our land. We only know that God promises to guard his people. And with that assurance, we can press on until the time when God will arise to bring final judgment on the wicked and deliverance of the righteous in the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, before we leave, I want to leave you with one last live-it-out lesson from this psalm. So here's the lesson to take away. As you walk out the doors, you get in your cars, and you go home, and you wake up in the morning for another week of work or whatever you may do this week, Here's the lesson to lean in on. Notice it. God's word is perfect and true. And what it reveals is completely reliable. What it teaches is proper and right. What it promises is certain. Therefore, confidently build your life on God's word. Listen, if we're going to build our lives on God's word, then what do you think that means? Don't make it harder than it is. If we're going to build our lives on God's word, then that means, well, first of all, we must read God's word. We probably then need to learn God's word. And we need to trust God's word. And by all means, we need to live by God's word. Why? Because God's word is the only true source for comfort, and get this, in our endurance till Jesus comes. The word of God is what we must believe and trust till Jesus comes. So build your life on God's word. It's pure. It's true. It's completely reliable. It's proper and right. And it is certain. 
I could go on and on about the Word of God. If you want to read more about God's Word, just read Psalm 19 or Psalm 119. With your heads bowed. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you again for this Psalm of David here in Psalm 12. Thank you for being a God who not only hears our cries for help in desperate situations, but, but Lord, you are a God who promises to act on our behalf. And so may we put our trust in you alone. May we build our lives on the sure foundation of your word. Lord, give us the grace to be the godly and faithful in the world today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.